our highest focus on the indigenous lens of learning Ooh. by applying a holistic approach to all we provided in school. And most of it was done outside in the environment with our elders, with teachers on the ground that knew the environment and could apply that lens, give it back to us with curriculum content and that we could take back to our students. That's the indigenous lens. Hello there. My name is Kit Rackley, my pronouns are they, them, and this is Coffee and Geography. The aim of the show is to get to know, explore, and celebrate the diverse and intersectional range of people on this rock we call home, and their love and passions of it. We'll find out why guests identify as geographers, and if they don't exactly, We'll have fun exploring all the myriad of ways that connects their life to geography. So, pour your favourite brew, get cosy and listen in. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Twitter at Coffee Jog Pot. Off we go. Hello everybody, welcome to this special episode of Coffee and Geography in collaboration with the EnvCast, Decolonising Geography and University of Anglia's Project Change. More details about that collaboration will be given at the end of the episode, so please do listen to that after you've enjoyed this chat with our wonderful guests, Candice Lloyd and Candice Tonshay-Kia. Muy bien, uh, Marcy McWitch. I am fine, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I loved how you asked how I was. That is beautiful. You did such a good job. Um, so, Tonshay-Kia uh, to you. So you can say muy bien, means muy bien. I'm well. Yeah, muy bien, I'm well. All right. Uh, so thank you. Thank you very much for having me here tonight. I'm I'm pleased. This is exciting. I'm nervous, too. And I oh. tend to talk a lot when I'm nervous. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny enough, so do I. So we're in good company. Oh, good. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'll, I'll introduce you as you put on your website, but it will be absolutely amazing. Because when you introduced yourself to me when we first chat, you did it beautifully in your native language. So I'll let you do that. So, but for everybody, okay. so on your website, you you said here that um, so Candice is a, a Métis cultural advisor, speaker, and educator, focused on cultural awareness workshops, truth and reconciliation training, and relationship building. Candice recognizes the power of bringing people together from all walks of life. Building building community is a time honored tradition of the Métis. And her goal is to find pathways to work together in the spirit of collaboration and harmony, which is perfect. That's exactly what we're doing here. So yeah. thank you. I will introduce myself in the language. And uh, for whatever reason, you need me to translate <laughs> it in any way. Um, so um, for you, I'll say bonsoir. Bonsoir. <laughs> Ni Micha Femi a Ilalat Cross Saskatchewan, a Red River, Manitoba, a Susan Rilantario, Ashkania. Don't Napani ni Wikiniqua. And what I said is good evening and how are all my friends out there tonight? I am called Candace Lloyd and I'm also known as White Raven Woman in the Ashnabe or First Nations communities within my region. I have Metis family that extends from Cross Lake Island, Saskatchewan, Red River, Manitoba, and Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. I currently reside in the small town of Napanee, although I kind of like my stomping grounds. I call it the land between, and that's a, mm. a very unique place. So that's where I am. Yeah. So that's me, uh, kind of in a nutshell. 
yeah and we're definitely going to have a little chat about kind of like how all of these places have, have formed your identity uh, but yeah. before we get on to that bit which is usually the second thing we talk about the first thing we talk about is is when you um, usually sit down and you have a chat with someone either it's a friend or someone new what do you usually um, have in front of you I mean I usually have um, a cup of Yorkshire tea which is basically tea from Assam in India um, okay but uh, what do you tend to enjoy when you're having a nice chat over? Oh, it depends on on when and who's coming. So it can range from anything from um, just simple water to mm-hmm. a glass of wine to uh, a cup of tea to <laughs> um, herbal teas that we've made or created to a cup of coffee. And that's usually my go. I'll be honest. I love a good cup of coffee. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, well, let me see. A good dark roast uh for me thank you and uh <laughs> even a shot of espresso on occasion although most people say i don't need it so, <laughs> um but yeah it can range um i like my evenings to be quiet so usually it's it's just the chill out and it's a glass of wine or whatever but um during the day and mostly in the afternoon it's tea and in the morning it's coffee so I kind of have my range so uh, it all depends on on where we're at. So yeah, it's uh, it's quite eclectic, and that's all part of welcome uh, for our community too. Is to know uh, uh, when you're inviting someone in, what they might offer or what they might like. So you have a wide range of things to offer, so that they can feel welcome in your space. So yeah, that's why I mentioned everything because I usually have everything. Uh, yeah. That way, when they say, "Oh, I'd like to have a." And I was like, oh, yes, I have that. Thank you. Come sit down. <laughs> Before I met my my wife, who drinks quite a various amount of things, she's usually a coffee drinker. Her family's a big, big coffee drinker. But um, but she does dabble in a little bit more in the herbal teas and the things like that as well. And my mom and dad, it was just pure and simple, as probably most Brits, I'm stereotyping myself and my culture here, black tea, <laughs> black blend tea all the time. And you go around my mom and it's like, do you want a cup of tea? It's immediately, do you want a cup of tea? Not like, what drink do you want? Do you want a cup of love? <laughs> so, uh, but um, but now, but now, my mum actually keeps the odd kind of fruit tea every now and then. I think that's my wife's influence. So, oh, but we, yeah. but I, I do, I, I must admit, I, I, I do like my black tea. And when I, when I came and lived in the states for a fair bit, I did get a whole bunch of stuff brought over with me because I couldn't stand like the Lipton tea. What's the brand there then? Which brand? Like, is it like we have? There's Tetley. Yeah. There's Lipton's. There's a few others. <laughs> Yeah, we so we have quite a fair fair few. I mean, we have our classic ones, our Tetley PG Tips, and and as everyone knows, I'm not product placement in on this podcast. Oh no, it's, no, I'm just curious. By this point, so you're, you're not you're my kind of like 25th, 26th guest now. I've been through the whole range now, so everyone's getting a fair fair commercial break, right? <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm usually I'm usually a fan of uh, Yorkshire tea, which is um, which is I think it's mostly a, a blend from Assam in India. Which okay. is incredible because I actually got to speak to another ah. guest from the Assam, who was originally from the Assam region, uh, from Golpala. And um, he's, yeah, so uh, everyone can listen to that. That was episode 14 with uh, the actor Adil Hussain. And he ah. actually showed me uh, a lovely brew that his wife made, made out of, you know, pure Assam tea leaves, which was, it was so golden. Oh, and I yeah. just, I could almost smell it coming through the computer, Candice. It was beautiful. So, so uh, yeah, we here, uh, we have our medicinal teas that a lot mm. of us gather to do. So we have uh, um, cedar tea, uh, which is an unusual thing you wouldn't think to drink. Um, 
rose hip tea as another one. Oh yeah, yep. Um, that most people wouldn't like you think to drink, but it's again, it's all about flavors and textures and tastes. And I, I do love my tea. My grandmother was a big tea drinker. Uh, she would make a pot of tea that could probably stand a spoon in, um, <laughs> and she used loose leaf tea hmm. that had to be loose leaf, and it was always brought in in a cake. So it would come like in this big, a brick. It would come in a compressed brick. And she'd chisel off a chunk and she'd throw it in the pot with the, you know, and then the water would bloom it. And so you'd have all these bits floating around. Um, oh, nice. If she liked you, she'd have the <laughs> sieve. And she's, but <laughs> generally, uh, it would be like, you'd have to have a real knack to making sure that the tea leaves would settle to the bottom of the cup so you could enjoy a good cup without. Oh. Casing. So, but the other thing is yeah. too the tradition of reading tea leaves and all that kind of came out of that. So, oh, that's uh, awesome. Yeah, yeah that's a lot of fun. That. Yeah, and that's where the tradition comes in. They leave the tea and tea tea leaves in the cup, so when you're done drinking the tea, you can read your future according to the tea leaves. Oh, that's brilliant. That's now made all these connections with me because, like, again, I've only really had the kind of the the hearsay stereotype, kind of what you do to to read tea leaves. Now, rose hit. I have had rosehip tea and I have drank it for medicinal purposes, but I, I will be honest with you, I cannot remember for the life of me why I did drink it or what ailment I had. So rosehip, what do you usually drink that for then? Oh, goodness. Uh, well, one of the biggest things is it's highest in vitamin C. So three rosehips will give me the equivalent to a single orange. Wow. So you're talking like, you know how the size of them, they're not very big. And if they're um, if they're harvested at the right time, they have a um, lot of the biggest thing I think is the immune the immune system. So like a, as part of the vitamin C profile for your immune immunity immunity booster, um, it will help you build up your immunity. It supports for heart disease, um, diabetes, health. Um, what else can I give you on that? So I don't want to give you anything mm. too inaccurate. If you were um, had a cold, it would soothe for that. If you had um, any gastric issues, it would probably cover into that as well. So it covers kind of almost everything. It's one of those, you know, you get mm. it, it'll fix it. Um, we'd make it into mash. Like the rose hips can actually be boiled and make into a mash to eat like cereal. So that's, it, it's so many things, antioxidants. It's just crazy i I, i'm trying to think of something very specific that you might have had at the time if you were using as a specific herbal Um, i wonder if it was recommended to me because i I do have um irritable bowel syndrome so okay so it is a digestive aid so it will uh it may aid in weight loss if if you're looking for that but it most specifically it contains um oh of course now my my elders will say don't worry about it it'll come to you when it's meant to I always thought that when I couldn't say something or couldn't think of it, um, it meant that I just couldn't remember it. And I said, no, sometimes it just means that you're not meant to say it at that time and that that's okay. Because as we get into our knowledge sharing, and that's part of our journey as knowledge knowledge keepers. Um, anyway, what it does is it breaks down food more effectively for you to absorb the, pro- the nutrients out of it. And for those who have GI issues, it will help with that acidic breakdown so that you can get it out. I know it has something to do with the acid levels, mm. um, but it's good. It's good medicine and all the way around. Uh, it does so many other things. It's for rheumatoid arthritis. Um, 
uh, which is one of the other big things we use it for. So if you have any aches mm-hmm. and pains and joints. Um, so yeah, it all depends. It all depends, but I yeah. like it for just its taste and flavor and good stuff. So I think it's kind of funny. Yeah, I do have a book of harvestables that I've written. I've never actually got it published. I just kind of did it. Oh, nice. <laughs> and everyone says, why aren't you publishing that? I don't know. It sits here. It's it's here. I just, <laughs> I don't, it's one of those things. It's just like, I, I did it for me and the knowledge keepers that gave me the information. I didn't do it so that, uh, as, as in, at the time, as something that I was going to publish. Um, although I've been recommended because our knowledge holders are leaving so fast. Mm. Um, that to share some of that with others, it would be a good thing. Yeah. It would be, I think, some nice. Yeah. So, yeah. So, rose hip is good. Um, rose hip and muskeg tea is uh, one of the favorites uh, I grew up on um, my grandma. So, muskeg, if you know muskeg, is like muskeg. So, if you've ever been in a muskeg, it's like that mm. boggy kind of surface area, right? Um, and it grows a particular kind of plant. That plant is, looks like, um, uh, what do you call it? Kind of like a velvety on the underside, okay. gray velvet kind of texture on the bottom, underneath side, uh, kind of a dusky gray on the top. Fantastic, um, uh, in combination with a rose hip, immune boosting, antioxidants, anti-cancer, um, just the list is endless. So that's why when we go out harvesting and we know you get your knowledge and you put the things together, there's an actual purpose for it. And, uh, rose hip and muskeg tea is a a genuine favorite. I grew up using. Yeah. So kind of neat. Kind of neat. I love I love I love the sound of the the journey as well for all that kind of stuff. I don't think we're going to have ju- deep journey kind of answer to to that first question of of the podcast about about drinks. That was absolutely beautiful, Candice. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. So you um you mentioned about where you're located right now, which is uh, Napanee in um, right. Ontario in. Canada, but you've you also mentioned some other places as well. And when I looked at a, um, there's this fantastic resource uh, which you may or may not be aware of, and people should definitely check out is um, native-land.ca, which is a project where loads of people are trying to gather together and map indigenous land. So you know uh-huh. to try and, and it's such an amazing thing. And when I clicked on uh, Matisse, I didn't realize it it covers traditionally such a huge swathe of canada so almost not not quite as far as toronto to the east but almost getting that way in like a big arc all the way up and so yeah so wow where do we start with this so your identity as it is today obviously would be would be shaped for the journey that you've taken you know in space as well as time so what can you tell me about that how what has formed Candice Lloyd of today, you know, and I know this, you could go back and back and back and back. Take us through that. Okay. So the reason I introduce myself the way I do is I offer you where all my relations come from. And that's important because that's where my matriarchs are from, um, out of both family lines that we've discovered so far. So I have family in Sault Ste. Marie. I have family that has moved out of Sault Ste. Marie back down into um, Red River, and then back up to St. Marie, back down into uh, Lower Ontario. I uh, started, a f- my other family started in Saskatchewan, moved all the way, uh, traveled as a cartographer, he did so, and his wife, all the way out west to BC, all the way across the northern United States, and back settled into um, Ontario. Huh. Through the lineage and lines and you know family get-togethers and so forth, uh, the family tree looks like more like a spaghetti junction. <laughs> um, because there's so many when you find out, okay, well, 
okay. And oh, uh, yeah, it just starts looking like more like cousins and more cousins. And um, then you find out you have more in, Indigenous families, uh, First Nation families, um, and, and you want to make sure you account for all of them. Uh, so for me, I grew up uh, with both parents, my mom and my dad, uh, raised in the country and on the land. So that meant that I was um, up until about the age of what, 13, I guess, hunting and fishing and trapping and doing all that fun stuff with my dad and my brothers. And then when I was 13, I got swapped over to my mom. Not my idea. Uh, <laughs> to learn how to can and preserve garden and do some of the other things. Uh, my grandparents, my grandmothers on both sides had two very different viewpoints. So when I wasn't with my parents, I was with my grandparents or aunts and um, learned different parts of the culture. So on my mom's side, I learned about medicines and being on the land and a very Zen-like quality lifestyle. It was based on community, uh, helping community out, learning how uh, to welcome. I learned how to welcome in that home. I learned what welcome meant. And I learned that um, material wealth had no value. Like to, to have many, many things meant nothing. To, to be able to offer of yourself uh, is something that has great beauty. So in there, I learned that. And then on the other side, I learned uh, about standing up for myself. Uh, they were much more rebellious in nature. We learned how to jig. We learned more about music. Learned a lot about family trees and relations and relationships. And on that side, I learned how to hunt, trap, fish, um, a different side of the land where trees were important, where earth was important, where geography was very important, uh, and how geography affected, uh, climate and geography affected uh, the medicines that my other grandmother would use. Mm. So it was kind of like, so now I'm the combination of two very strong teachings. Um, and that's, I think that's what makes this unique, because I don't know very many others that have two very strong, unique different and I do mean different vastly different outlooks on what being Métis is and what it is to come together as a person now it's, it's a very unusual very unusual blend and I'm 52 I've lived most of my entire adult life in Ontario I did a little trip up to the Yukon Territory in high school uh, through a student exchange I loved it felt like I was going home and I went to Texas for seven years um, as a nurse, tra traveled down and, and worked there. And then I came back home to finally settle up. And it was like, okay, this is it. Um, and being Métis was something more verbally allowed when I returned from Texas. Before that, it was kind of like that behind closed doors. Uh, don't talk about it too much. You're not going to be loud about it. You are who you are. We know who you are. I know who I am. But you weren't like, oh, I'm Métis um, because you're... I'm going to come out with them. Bastard Indian, half breed, half blood, mm. um, born on the wrong side of the blanket kids. And I grew up shielding myself a lot from that because if people knew who we were, there's no doubt you're in a small town. The town I grew up in was 400 people at most wow. on a good yeah. day. And there was more people in the grave than there was life. <laughs> so and they've got those kind of communities, right? Uh, but they know who you are. Right. They knew everyone knows who you are. Uh, it didn't matter. You couldn't escape it. Um, and at times there was a very divide line about who you were and whether or not you could participate or be a part of a certain about that community. It was hard. It was hard. It was hard at times. Yes, absolutely. Uh, when I'm talking about being raised on the land and a lot of people are like, oh, what do you mean by that? Well, 
That means that I saw the grocery store once a month. And I do mean I saw it, meaning I sat on the outside, <laughs> didn't go inside while my parents picked up whatever staples we needed for that month. Um, priority was given to harvesting off the land, our gardening, um, eating wild meat, fishing, and and if we could grow it, we could eat it. So that meant we had chickens and we had pork, and mm. right? Or we traded. So we'd trade somebody for something um, that we didn't have if we wanted it. So that... And when I went to college, here's how here's how where this big switch happens for me. I went actually went into culture shock because I had no idea what grocery stores actually had. They're talking about an 18 year old girl walking wow. into it. And by then, I was still gro- I went started going grocery shopping with my mom and dad, but it wasn't the same experience as having money in my pocket. I'm going to go buy groceries and standing there looking at celery and everything you could imagine. Yeah. A smorgasbord of fruits and vegetables. And you're like, oh my. And then walking down the aisles of prepared food. Everything you could imagine prepared. Already already prepared. All you had to do was like add water or heat up or something. Um, and chicken and beef and pork already cut up um, in their nice little tiny pre-arranged packages. <laughs> you know, yeah. so you can look at them all. And I come from a, a home where we would call chickens, right? So we call our own chickens and prepare them for winter. So to see them already there uh, at a certain price, and I'm thinking, I can't remember, I can't imagine how much they are at home because we just raised them. So to me, they were free, even though we paid for the grain. Um, it kind of blew my mind. And then I went over to the to the where they have the fish, you know, and all laid out. And I'm like, ooh, I like fish. I'll have fish. How much is that fish? Like $26 or something yeah. for trout. And I looked at that. I said, give me a do-worm. I'm gone. I'm not doing this. <laughs> I'm paying this exorbitant amount. I really had a hard time figuring out what to buy because uh, the other thing was not knowing how much to buy. Right. What is too much? How much is too much um, before it goes to waste? Because we had freezers. And when you're in college, you have a fridge. You know, um, <laughs> so I couldn't adjust that piece. It was a real shock. It was a shock to uh, be in the city. I was from the country, um, riding transit. They've not been on transit before. Then now that was about, um, you know, macaroni and cheese was a thing. Didn't know what that is either. Boy, I'm going to tell you, Mm-mm. I think I would make my own. Ugh. Well, we never had macaroni anyway. That's another story for another time. But <laughs> uh, yeah, it just, it was amazing because when we wanted something ground, we had ground venison. We didn't have ground beef. Uh, the only time we had hot dogs is if we had a birthday party when we had guests in, right? Because we didn't know if they would enjoy having a venison or fish right. or uh, whatever we had. So we'd go out and buy something special so that all the friends that we would have coming in for a birthday party could eat what we would figure would be something that they would have. Because I can remember buying hot dogs and at school, that kind of thing, right? So we knew everybody had hot dogs at school and everybody knew what they were. So we just bought them and have them for a birthday party. So when I say I lived on the land, I lived on the land. I lived on it in a way that people today at my age probably have never done. What to unpick there? I'm just going to have to select one thing and go with it, I think. Um, yeah. What... So first of all, with the, with the food waste kind of thing, it's one thing I've always bemoaned quite a lot um there was this one um issue of the national geographic magazine which was fantastic and it was 
it was there was a large part of it which was all about food waste and how you know this overproduction commercialization capitalism way of you know of intensive farming everything has just produced over you know and it's caused overconsumption as well so obviously that that's a hub of thing that plays into it i feel things like the way that food has been capitalized the way that food you know consumption and, and intensity of food production has been, it has it is one of the prime examples in my opinion of how we have become disconnected from the land of how Absolutely. we have um We've, we we don't use land in harmony or a synergy or or as symbiotically anymore. We use it. It's just take, 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 take. And, mm-hmm. you know, from your point of view, therefore, given that everything that you said, what, what do you reckon we've lost as, you know, Western society in particular? What do you think we've lost by having this disconnect where we can just go into a supermarket? Everything is God in plastic wrap. From from your point of view, from someone who lives off the land who, who wants to work with the land, what do you reckon we've lost as human society in that respect if we've disconnected ourselves and we've just put everything in plastic or what we want oh, yeah. we get yes that's the other thing it's it's there it's instant it's it's instant gratification mm. um if i want strawberries i can have strawberries it doesn't matter if they come from california or mexico right. or um someone shipping them all the way from italy or uh, a nice warm place it doesn't matter i want strawberries and i want them fresh and i want them now uh, when I was growing up, we didn't have strawberries unless they were in season. And when I mean in season, that means I'm eating Ontario strawberries from Ontario because they grow here and I can eat them. Uh, and then you'd only have them for a short time. But the mm. thing is, you can appreciate the flavor and the nuance, and they're just so perfect at that moment. So if you think about it as the anticipation of something that you don't get to have all year. I'm going to use the strawberries as an example because this is like one of my favorite fruits, right? But if I could only have it in June, and that's when they come on, they come in in June. And if I can only pick them and eat them and enjoy yeah. them in a month of June. Now imagine, no other time of month can you have them. You can't ship them in. You can't bring them from anywhere else. Uh, my eco footprint would be zero because I'm not going to buy them from California. I'm not going to bring them in from another country because that means they're flipped, they're, they're shipped, plant, we call it, on the truck in a plane or whatever. So that means I'm not eating them. Probably being gassed as well so they don't go right. off. Right. So yeah, and, and they're picked at a time when they're just ripe enough to be ripe. But you know, a strawberry doesn't continue ripening after it's picked from the vine, right? It just, it stops, it, st- it stays wherever it is. So it's green when it's picked, it's green when you get it home. Uh, so the the trick is to appreciate a seasonal, the season, the season of the food. And and what's local to you is another thing that would be very important to recognize. Uh, and try enjoying things in a smaller moderation that comes outside of that realm. So for me, something that doesn't grow here in Ontario uh, that I would have to go out and get or grow on my own, but say um, mangoes. Mm. They're not here in Ontario, nope. <laughs> but I, I do kind of enjoy them on occasion. But in a very specific instance, I would say, okay, I'd really like to have a mango, but when are they in season in the country that I want them so that they don't cost as much to get here or they're not hyper-grown? And we have disconnected. I've seen the disconnection so significantly because young people don't know when things are in season. When is squash in season? Where do potatoes come from? Where do eggs come from? They come from the store. No. (laughs) No, yes. I've, I've been in classrooms. I've been in classrooms. I have had this discussion many times with my youth 
my young students are sitting there um, and we're doing the let's find out where food comes from kind of class, you know, and the, you know, they look at the cow, they know milk comes from a cow. They got the idea that milk comes from a cow, but they also had the idea that brown milk comes from brown cows. No, it doesn't work that way. So, you know, or that uh, eggs are in a crate at the store, but they don't make the connection from the crate to the chicken. And they don't make the connection that that chicken or that beef or that cow uh, has to be fed. And what does it feed on? What do what happens to its waste? Mm. Um, like if you have to look at it as a whole uh, as well, like when you say, okay, where do potatoes come from? At the store. Okay, great. They're at the store. <laughs> so everything <laughs> comes from the store. They have no idea that it comes from a plant or what kind of plant or what does it look like? Uh, potatoes come out of the ground because it's a root crop, right? Uh, when we were doing our vegetable community gardens and we were showing the students, our youth, like our community youth, you know, we're pulling out potatoes and we're showing them these potatoes right out of the ground. And they're like shocked that they're yeah. potatoes, number one. Number two, that they're dirty because they don't look all nice and clean and scrubbed like they do in the <laughs> store. But even carrots, um, when I describe harvesting carrots, and I say, well, you realize these are domesticated wild carrots. And they're like, huh? Well, let me take you over somewhere and we'll go harvest some. Oh. You don't have to plant. So from the planting and the harvesting there, I take them over to show them what a wild carrot looks like and dig it from there. And they're just like stunned, shocked, absolutely blown away because they're white or like creamy, uh, kind of a border between yellow, cream, white. Or they've, been, they've gone in like two or three forks because they've grown around a stone yeah. or something. Yeah. So they, yeah, they're very misshapen, right? <laughs> yeah. They're not like your nice straight line. Um, and we don't allow for imperfections in our grocery store. So no. anything that's imperfect doesn't get on the shelf. And where it goes, I have no idea, uh, except it doesn't make it to the shelf. So it doesn't that's make crazy. it to the shelf. I'm assuming it might go to canning. It might go into other processes like juices or something like that. But I don't know. I think our consumption is way high. We, we're a very high um, consumers. Uh, I've spoke to a lot of people. Uh, I don't know what to do with my leftovers. Mm. I don't know what to do with, you know, if my peppers have been, you know, I've had them for two or three days in the fridge, but I don't know what to do with them after they kind of go soft or, you know, I don't know what to do with this. Or I got my cauliflower. I wanted the cauliflower this week, but I, I don't know what to do with it now because like I really didn't want it after all, mm. and they just chuck it in the bin, right? So, uh, one, uh, my grandmother on my mom's side is the one that taught me how to cook. She cooked. I didn't. I didn't learn as much as I'd like to say I did. But anyway, <laughs> I do cook now as an adult, much older person, and, and years of practice. Um, but she would do a lot of depression cooking, where you would save the onion skins, onion buns. Uh, the peels from carrots um, and put them all together. And that's how you make your broth. Yeah. Uh, she could take a soup bone and turn it into a 10 course meal because that's all you had. Um, so I, I, I learned a lot of that. I took a lot of those recipes. I really enjoyed that. So right now our biggest disconnect is that the people that are, the youth that are coming up through the grades have no clue. The adults aren't helping because our consumerism is, oh, I want when I want when I want it. Mm. And we, we're we're not too in tune to where it's coming from ourselves. Um, when I want strawberries, they're there on the shelf. I'll buy them, but nobody really looks to say, "Oh, hey, that's out of uh, where did that come from? Oh my goodness, that came out of wherever." Like for me here, it's California and Mexico. 
And I've actually stopped looking at them. I started looking at like the lettuce. Where is the lettuce coming from? Oh, it's Ontario today. Good. We'll eat Ontario lettuce. That's right here. Hmm. That's. I think that's our hardest, yeah. our hardest hurdle. Our local supermarket has actually been um, selling, it says on the packaging, wonky potatoes, wonky carrots. So it actually that's on the packaging, you know. So it's, I'm, I'm looking at it, it's like, I don't know whether the face palm that they're, they're making a market employee out of the fact that they don't have to be perfect. So I'm like, well, okay, a small step in the right direction, I guess is the right step in the right Yeah, but anyway, we have it here too as well. We have yeah. um, naturally imperfect. Naturally Oh, okay. Yeah, right. That's, we that's... have a naturally imperfect because uh, they grow naturally imperfect. They do. Everything grows naturally imperfect. Yes. And I often tell everyone, anyone who wants to hear, grow a garden, grow a balcony garden, grow a, a urban garden, um, mm-hmm. pour dirt on your cement. You'd be surprised what you can put on it um, <laughs> and see if you can get something to grow. And you're not going to find that they don't look anything like what you have in the store and they're going to taste a hundred times better than anything you've ever bought oh, in the yes. store. Oh, yes. Yo, yes. Um, a tomato ripe off the vine, still warm, you know, um, right. I mean, eat it like an apple. Yeah. You'll never, ever, ever have another flavor like it. We've got um, a very beautiful picture of my eldest, not long after we had moved into this house, actually. Um, so he would have been uh, 10 months, 11 months old, perhaps. And we were out in the garden and we were like, where's he gone? Where's he gone? And he's he's just plopped himself by the apple tree, and the apple tree is a very small and it branches over quite a lot with, it. and we can just see him just going, and the apple wasn't quite ripe yet; it was quite oh. tough, but he was just munching right into it. So he just picked the apple off the tree, and he was just, yeah. And we are so so lucky, and we we didn't buy the house for this reason. We bought the house because we needed a slightly bigger house because we were having a grown family, but um, it's it's got like a mini orchard we've got an apple tree we've got a pear tree we've got two plum trees we've got a bay tree and i think to have a, an orchard you technically have to have five or more trees that bears fruit right, I so i guess we have an orchard yeah congratulations um, <laughs> and we've got uh, we've we've got some raised beds and in the old house that we used to live which is in the city of norwich so our garden was we were lucky to have a fairly large garden but just enough space to have an allotment where the soil was oh they had buried tons of nonsense in the soil there's bits of bricks bits of glass in it and everything they they clearly just when they were built in building the area they just shoved all the rubble in the ground right but mm-hmm. we still managed to dig in so um, we grew potatoes and we grew carrots and they would oh. and you're right picking them right up and just say what should we have to say let's let's make some mashed potatoes or some homemade chips and you just go out in the garden pull out one of the plants chop it in lovely yeah and, oh, yeah. and you're, you're right the taste is nothing like it. That tomato off off the um, off the vine, or and we actually took one of my parents' chickens as well. We we looked after one of their chickens because the poor thing was pretty low down the pecking order, shall we say? Yeah. <laughs> so we we quote unquote rescued it, and we we looked after my parents' chicken, and she was happy. She must have been um very very happy to be on her own because as soon as we got her back up here and she was laying eggs like no one's business you know she was a very very happy chick so yeah i'm i'm definitely we're we're in a suburban area now you got the space use it go to go for it and it's just so much fun and i was out there today as a bit of garden therapy because it's i've been struggling the last week and a bit and i just let the kids out there and play while i was pruning the trees and i was watering all the veg and 
putting some seeds. I, I do. I do. Too. That's, I agree. I agree. Uh, there's nothing like garden therapy. Yeah. Um, as someone who's gardened their whole life, you know, when you put your hands in the earth, you can feel the warmth, uh, the moisture, mm. the air, the heat. It has to be the four elements. Um, yeah. That's what we were taught. So you have to have a certain amount of everything so that you have the right growing space for your seeds. But um, I like doing all my gardening in my bare feet. So I so go does my wife. Um, and, you know, bare hands. Uh, so I usually come in grubbied right up to my elbows, up to my knees. It doesn't matter. Um, and uh, that makes, makes it a little bit better. I would, I've, I've always wanted a bay tree. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to like be like, I'm going to be the little envy over here. going. <laughs> <laughs> but when you connect yourself to the land to grow things, and this is what I, I'm all about that growth and growing and learning from the land when you are able to even just plant even if all you want to do is a flower garden that supports edible flowers or that you want to do something for um, pollinators so you can have a pollinating garden that's fantastic it's a mm. step in the right direction because it brings in your natural uh, area foods and herbs and things that are sustainable within your area the other thing about it is that you're going to start recognizing, you're going to start going out, you're going to start looking at your soil, you're going to start looking at your plants, you're going to start looking at your trees, you're going to start looking at your neighbor's plants and trees, and you're going to start looking at your town's plants and trees, and you're going to start looking at your overall globe, and that's going to start connecting, and you're going to start looking at water, and you're going to start looking at well, what's better water? And you're going to look at fertilizer, whether or not you should be buying it in the store or can you make it yourself? Mm. Um, can you make a tea bag? And, and that's an awful way to call it, especially <laughs> for people who like tea. But uh, we used to take uh, chicken manure or rabbit manure or any other kind of real broken down manures and make a, um, a sack with it from the old grain sacks, like the burlap sacks, mm -hmm. and we'd throw it in a big jug of water. So it'd be like this big barrel of rainwater that would collect, right? Um, and when we needed to to water our plants, we'd water it from that. Oh yeah. So it would have constant fertilization um, from a very mild fertilization, oh, and awesome. never had to worry about mosquitoes because mosquitoes don't like that kind of stuff. So, um, and it was good. That's and and when you become aware of your space and where you grow and what you're doing, you're going to become more aware of what your community is doing you're going to become more aware of what uh your country your your town or your local grocer's doing then you're going to notice that your um country is doing then you're going to start looking at what your global is not doing or mm. is doing uh and that's a sudden awareness for some some will like just the light will go on it's like oh wow okay uh yeah that's not what we want to do and then try to make changes others will slowly come to the realization uh i find that our young people are quick to pick that up so if you're embedding it in your curriculum you're putting it mm. in right in there they're quick to pick it up because they're the ones that you're going to be saying hey we need you to get outside let's go outside and you know pick a plant two trees or pick a tree and two plants let's get to know them they're going to be your best friends you're going to get to know them for the next two or three years um and you're going to write about them next year you're going to pick them each year pick two or three more pick two or three more and keep broading out moving out um, this helps you create that awareness. Our youth need it. We need it. If yeah. we aren't doing anything ourselves as adults and older adults, 
We need to, if we're not listening to our elders, people that have lived through many horrible things um, and had to bend every rule there was to make a life uh, in what they had in the environment they had, um, we won't gain. And the other thing is, they're going to tell you things about the environment and the community that you don't know. So, hey, well, I remember when, you mm -hmm. know, someone's going to start telling you the story of, I remember when. Listen right. to that story. Because they're going to tell you about a story where the trees used to be there, there used to be a field or a small marshland, but now it's a mini mall. Right. And you're thinking, hmm, I wonder what happened there. Yeah. You know, uh, where did the animals go? Or did they go anywhere? Or if there was ponds there, there's no ponds now, well, where do they go? Yeah. And how do we fix that? Or can we fix it? Uh, it's it's that awareness. And it's, I find it's our young people that are growing up now to become more aware. We've given them a great burden. We're in the seventh generation or seventh fire. Uh, it's really hard on this group of, of people coming through because they have the choices to make. They have to really buckle down and know their environment, know their, the way the way the earth is mm. going to be working uh, in the climate that we're in right now. Yeah. What's really what's really important as well is that, of course, we'll we'll be talking, you know, in the panel with some other people for for the MCAS with regards to, you know, moving forward the way that climate change is is really and you know having an impact here. And of course, the thing is is that as a community, as a as a human race, as or whatever it is as place, if we've locked ourselves away from the environment, we're going to be less able to adapt to the change in the environment and to the changing climate. So, you know, and, and for one thing I know that a lot of geography teachers teach over here is things like national parks, which, which, you know, can be mismanaged that they're a way of colonialization in a sense as well. And if you can't quite simply put fences up and say, okay, we're going to protect this land because, but that's what we're effectively doing with our towns, with our cities you know, we're walling ourselves, concreting ourselves away from nature. So now that we're undergoing all these substantial changes, you know, this environmental destruction, the climate is changing, it is leaving us less resilient and less adaptable to these changes. And which is why I think now to bring this all the way also, full circle back to yeah. what we're saying about reconnecting with our with environment is, is going to be such an important thing that we can do. And we owe it, us oldest, older generations, you know, to the youngsters to say, right, we need to help you break down the barriers that we have put up, yeah. you know, for example. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll, we'll probably talk about that a lot more um, with Manor and Tawny uh, when we do our MCAST uh, panel chat, which would be absolutely amazing. And remember, everybody, to listen to that, you can look at the link in the description. Um, one more last, last little thing I want, really want to, I'm just intrigued about. If we do just this very, very quickly before we finish off, oh, sure. um, is that, one thing I've noticed, I do know a tiny, tiny bit of French, not enough to have a conversation. So again, I'm not going to embarrass myself, right? <laughs> but if I if I was to say uh Namwen Le Boer, so oh. pass me the butter, I I recognize Le Le Boer because that's basically butter in French. So that there's a combination of language there. And and as you were giving your introduction, ah, I, yes. I could pick up a little bit of French in there. Yes, so, you did. So that's so yeah, very, very, very quickly, because unfortunately it's such a shame running out of time, but very, very quickly. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that melding, that combination of, of kind of like this really traditional um, language that has 
melded with French, I'm guessing, you yes. know, bearing in mind the part of the world, I guess you're in. <laughs> yeah. So um, I can leave you with that thought. Michio is a blended language. It is a pidgin language uh, originally brought out for fur trade in Canada when it was uh, before Canada was Canada. Oh, okay. Um, it is a mix between French and generally Cree oh. or OG Cree uh, languages because the OG Cree and Cree were primarily um, up in uh, Hudson's Bay area uh, and going down to the west. In the east, it would have been uh, a bit of French and Algonquin or Mi'kmaq uh, languages, which is still uh, Ashinaabe Moen, which is the umbrella language. So right. it falls, falls under uh, Algonquin, the language root. But it's really an interesting mix because depending on where you are, depending on what family lines you come from, your mix will be reflective of the family that you come from. So my family is mostly Cree line and we use a heavily Cree uh, French blend. So uh, it's it, it's a give and take and I still haven't figured out yet even in myself and uh, learning my own language when what fits where. I just take <laughs> it up where everyone listening to it. So like L'Ontario as as the French L'Ontario, right? Mm -hmm. um, places generally pick up the French um, but when you're talking about some of the um, other pieces of the language, it can be all the parts of the Cree. Uh, sometimes you'll hear je m'appelle. The, the French pieces of it, when you hear a lot of it, it's very broken. Um, there's no rolled R's. So when you hear um, like rouge, right. it'd be rouge or like as if you're, you're really <laughs> going to put that R in there um, because it's, it, it drops it like more like red. Mm. right so rouge like there's no like a rolling thing going um they drop that or drop it completely uh the other thing about it is the spelling changes significantly because it's all phonetic right. phonetic all the way across the board so if it sounds like a z it look, it's written as a z if it sounds and and even our indigenous languages it, you write it the way you hear it so that you can learn it because the language wasn't written, it was spoken. And when it was written, it was written in a phonetic that is not not in our classic alphabet, mm. which makes it even harder to try and uh, translate out uh, because it's double O's, double A's, double I's versus uh, a, a circle or whatever it would be that we use in our uh, indigenous language. So our Michif language is unique. It is uh, the pidgin language of the nation. It was the first blended language of the nation. It was the first genesis language of Canada. The Métis people are a genesis nation because we were born out of that fur trade uh, between European men and the First Nations women. Uh, that culture piece is very unique uh, for us. And that's what makes me very honored to be here because generally we don't get called in on these things so like oh. yeah yeah you got my go like my hearts are racing and my hands are all oh. like nervous and <laughs> oh. well it's an absolute honor to really is an honor to for you to be here and and this is the and this is the thing as well when when we had our lovely chat you know talk about what we're going to do and, yeah. and things like that you know it was you have absolutely spot on with what you said with regards to uh it's not black and white it's not colonizers and indigenous people you know there's the human race has a long history of 
of obviously conflict and conquering and colonialism, but it also has a long history of collaboration, of networking, of combining, of of yeah. you know partnering coming up, coming together, and and so and that's why I think you know talking talking to you for example is just this beautiful example of of a culture that has come together and it can you know is still here in existence and still trying to connect back to the roots and you know if the human race can do that and say look we we do need to be respectful be mindful of our indigenous cultures this population because that's where we've all come from at some point back the human lineage right and respect that and see all the beauty and diversity then that's all for it and making sure that language survives and, and you know that's why i think it's it's quite a beautiful language though the 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 mixture of say cree and french it's and i'm gonna i'm gonna have one more go at it at the very end and we'll see how we go all right all right fair <laughs> so, enough i'm impressed <laughs> to um to finish off then we um we're going to do what we call uh, a little thing called we are all geographers where we where all the guests link together and they try to uh link a word to to the world to geography now I, now we had uh, a young little whippersnapper last episode called Niall uh, Niall Cole who's just about to enter the teaching profession he's new what we call newly qualified teacher over here going to start teaching geography um and he came up for you the word lens as in from what we through what we see so actually I think this could be quite good for you, I think. So basically, Candice, what you've got to do is that you've got to use the word lens and just basically talk about how that connects with geography, with the world or, or culture or whatever you so wish. It's There's no prescription. It's how you wish to take it. The only the only stipulation is you've got 30 seconds because that's the challenge. So Okay. So if I've only got 30 seconds, let's get this on and let's do it quickly. Go for it. Uh, when I took my programming for my teacher requirements, the actual program I took was the Indigenous Education Teacher Program. And we focused on our highest focus on the Indigenous lens of learning Ooh. by applying a holistic approach to all we provided in school. And most of it was done outside in the environment with our elders, with teachers on the ground that knew the environment and could apply that lens, give it back to us with curriculum content and that we could take back to our students. That's the Indigenous lens. <laughs> Spot on 30 seconds as well. Yes. Wow. I've Everyone has done a great job with their 30 seconds, but they've always been about, oh, oh, the, but, da, 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 da. but he was like swimming through that one. That was lovely. <laughs> Thank you. I like it. I actually, I wasn't expecting, I was actually expecting a <laughs> word that was like something. And I was, I, no. the whole time I was like. All of I'm our like, guests have been amazing with the words that come. We've had a few random ones. Like somebody said trampoline just because they want, they were, they were really interested just to see, just to throw us. But so another one said squirrels Another one's, but then we've had things like hope and embodiment and things like that. So the words have been really, really amazing. And it's just been wonderful to use that method to connect everybody together. Right. So before we finish off then, obviously you would like to um, come up with a word yourself that whoever I speak to next has got to do the same thing. So do you have a word in mind? Yeah. Invasive. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Invasive. I don't know if anyone's used that. Nope. That's a new one. So last, last thing then, is there anyone you would like to say hello to or to pay respects to or anything like that? I could say thank you to all my relations. It is uh, an honor to have them had my past. So that's part of my past. Mm. They have all provided this knowledge going forward. 
I want to thank my community, my current community, my teaching community, my friends, my heart sisters. They know who they are, one and all, um, who support me when I'm down, when I'm feeling like I can't do another step. Um, oh. They're there to help pick me up. I want to say thank you to my three, four, uh, three, four now. I keep saying three, four <laughs> children. Um, I have a, a new adopted elder daughter um, oh, no. that kind of joined our family late. And um, she's always been a part of our family, but just decided that she's going to join us. And I'm I'm honored to have her a part of that. And um, like I said, all are welcome as part of my family. Um, so I have three daughters and a son. So that always uh, brings joy to our lives. Children are that part of it. I want to thank my parents uh, for for being a courageous enough to step out of our uh, first generation of kind of that residential school uh, system. A heartbreak and that even though we neither one of them were in residential schools and nearly the impacts were still there mm. and both at, in their own worlds uh had come together in a new world to start a new thing uh without that without the the past abuses without the past because without that i wouldn't be who i am today mm. without their courage to just keep pushing forward and and saying that education is important and that um being on the land and learning from the land is important i wouldn't be here and I can thank you for inviting Aww. me here. Um, I'm sure your children and wife are fantastically beautiful people. I um, I couldn't do this without anyone. I couldn't do this without uh, the support of my everything. And this and and I look at this as you being support now too, because uh, without you and doing your podcast, people wouldn't know who I am and where I am uh, and and what this is all about. So that's important as well. So thank I you. I guarantee you. <laughs> Candice that we are all honored I think everybody would have very much enjoyed this conversation and in that that and in that vein then so you have a website and you have um, a Twitter account so how can people connect with you and say hi to you I have um, a website Nocum Learning which means uh, learning from my grandmother Uh, originally it was Nocum Nochukoyashi which nobody could get their tongue around (laughs) but it actually means uh, learning in my grandmother's ways so today, reach out, uh, ask to learn in your grandmother's ways. Uh, the relationship between grandmother and child is a very unique thing. And as uh, learners, we have that. So Nocum Learning has a website. There is an email attachment. You can drop me a line. I'd be more than happy to answer any of your questions. Um, if you want to do a Zoom, you want to have a chat, I just love it. It sounds like an exciting endeavor. Uh, and I am in Canada. So if you happen yeah. to be here somewhere... <laughs> Uh, drop by that would be fantastic uh i'm always always open and i'm sure um get here can send you my way otherwise oh, that would I'd be, be even all right too yeah um so that's about it that's that's me in a Wonderful. nutshell right here we go everybody i'm gonna embarrass myself but i'm gonna try that so candice niwa ten awa pimi tam nasi ah well done <laughs> bone kachimik witch um so kachimik witch is um thank you very much and it's more than just a thank you that loose thank you is a very loose term mm. so what i actually can say is it's a heartfelt gratefulness that goes into um the depth of how we feel on the inside so it's not just thank you it it encompasses all that because thank you is a given 
when we are together, we should always be thankful for our time together. But when I say kichimikwinch, it means it's the greatest amount of heartfelt gratefulness of your time, of your journey, of all you are. And when I say bamapi uh, at the end, it means until we can meet again. Until again, uh, the reason for that is because our journey's not done. And when we come back together, we do not say goodbye because that's just too final. So, kichimikwinch and bamapi. Until we meet again, uh, we will enjoy our time together. It'll be fantastic. I'm up here. Absolutely. I'm up here. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you had fun. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe so more stories and experiences can drop into your favorite podcast app. If you fancy being a guest or have any feedback, follow us on Twitter at CoffeeJogPod and send us a DM. Or you could email coffeeandjog at geogramblings.com. Until next time, keep geogging. We hope you enjoyed the chat. This was a special episode, which is in collaboration with the EnvCast, hosted and produced by Mahnoor Kadir, Decolonizing Geography, which is a group of educators, academics and students in the United Kingdom working to decolonize the geography curriculum, and Project Change, which is a program of climate change workshops, resources and competitions from the University of East Anglia. The guest in this episode of Coffee and Geography will join other guests on the EnvCast for a panel discussion about Indigenous identities and climate change. These discussions form the basis of educational materials and resources written by members of Decolonising Geography and used in materials in Project Change. To listen to the panel discussion on the EnvCast, please see this episode's description where you can find a link to that episode. You can also find a link to the Decolonising Geography website and to Project Change. It is hoped that these resources can help teachers, students and members of the public understand how Indigenous populations are being impacted by climate change, but also what we can learn from them about managing our environment and becoming reconnected with it. Listening to those who are from cultures who have worked with the land and with the environment is absolutely key if we're going to push forward in addressing the climate crisis and move forward from discussions on the recent COP26 negotiations. If you have any questions, please get in contact with us at decolonisegeography at gmail.com. That's decolonise with an S, not a Z. We look forward to hearing from you.